Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Community Radio. This is bringing light into darkness, news, and analysis. I'm your host, Pedro Gatos, and we are transmitting from Austin, Texas, for your listening edification. Today is Saturday, September 17th, 2022, and this show will be rebroadcast on Monday, September 19th, 2022, from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. Central Standard Time at koop.org. All comments are welcomed and can be sent to Pedro at pgatos00 at gmail.com. That's pgatos00 at gmail.com. Many of the shows are archived at pedrogatos.org. This is our 124th post-COVID show. A new world, but the same place. So stay tuned for a very informed and documented dialogue. Thank you for joining us. And we hope to have a recording of the show up on pedrogatos.org website for your closer scrutiny within the week. Again, thank you for joining us tonight, and thanks for inviting your friends to join us in future shows. So stay tuned. But first, in the battle of ideas, let's get ready to go to war. Welcome. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis, with your host, Pedro Gatos. Hey, so first, just wanted to thank everybody that called in during our membership drive, especially those folks that called in during Bringing Light into Darkness. We had a very successful membership drive, and it's very rewarding to have that interaction with our listeners. Uh, tonight, wanted to frame our show by highlighting a, a recent article I came across. It was actually back in 2021, March of 2021, that Bernie Sanders wrote an article for The Guardian in which he highlighted a theme we regularly visit on bringing light into darkness, namely gross wealth inequality. Some of his findings include that over the past 40 years, there's been a massive transfer of wealth from the middle class and working families to the very wealthiest people in America. In fact, today, or as of March of 2021, 92 million people are uninsured or underinsured in the United States. The top 1% now own more wealth than the bottom 92%. In fact, during the pandemic, over the past 12 months ending in March of 2021, 650 billionaires have seen their wealth increase by some 1.3 trillion. This, as our middle class gets devastated. Low-income Americans have a life expectancy that is about 15 years lower than the wealthy. So wealth is hugely important. Meanwhile, the United States mainstream media narrative too often acts to distract the news-consuming public from evidence and data that is most important to a democracy, namely equitable access to wealth and freedom from unmet primary needs. Particularly when it comes to U.S. foreign policy, our media fail to inform us. Instead, our media acts on behalf of preserving and hiding this wealth inequality status quo from public recognition. And really, why shouldn't it? After all, we are acculturated by a media in which, as of the year 2022, some 90% of the media in the United States is controlled by just six corporations, AT&T, CBS, Comcast, Disney, News Corp, and Viacom. Together they have a net worth of some $430 billion. So they are part of the wealth inequality crisis in that they are a direct beneficiary of it. And a large part of the wealth accumulation and wealth inequality comes 
from really the focus of this show, a long criminal history of U.S. foreign policy outcomes, U.S. foreign policy outcomes that partner with those that wish to line their own pockets and corrupt leaders who serve each other at the direct cost of the majority populations they claim to serve. How else could the top 1% now own more wealth than the bottom 92% in the United States? On Bringing Light into Darkness, we seek to fairly judge U.S. foreign policy relative to other nations. And how do we do that? And that's a fair and important question. We use the Ronald Reagan approach. Are you better off now than you were four years ago? And what we have found from our exhaustive studies on the subject is that time and time again, the consistent outcome in those countries where our foreign policy interests are realized is a result that the majority population receive a poor quality of life outcome. In other words, when we win, they lose. Yet we never see such fundamental metrics applied in the judgment of our foreign policy outcomes by our media and pundits. And because we do not pursue such inquiries, we are more likely to mislead or be misled into one foreign policy fiasco after another, one train wreck after another, a fiasco that enriches a very small elite group of connected economic interests with huge profitability margins, but at the same time devastates the quality of life of the majority populations of these countries. And this is because, in truth, we're not in the business of promoting democracy, but rather we're in the business of promoting and maintaining great wealth inequality. If we understand this, the world around us, which they disproportionately control, makes much more sense. And so do our foreign policy decisions. And tonight, we return to our focus on the Ukraine-Russian-NATO crisis, and we step outside of our media in order to get a perspective from the Russian considerations that don't make it to our media. We'll be reviewing and listening to a video that was created by Russian interests, but which make really important newsworthy points that we in our media have not been hearing. So enjoy. A good evening. What follows is the soundtrack of a video that was created just last month, August 12, 2022. It really features a presentation more from a Russian perspective that we don't get here in the United States. So I wanted to share the content of the video with you and fill in some gaps of information that might be helpful in getting a more honest picture of all sides of the issue. This video is called Inside Russia's Military Operation. It's an RT documentary that was created August 12, 2022. I will be interjecting and reading the Russian-speaking portions of the video, which are a significant portion of the video. So that will be me breaking in, but the content is exactly as it appears on the video, unless I'm making a personal commentary along the way, which surely will be the case. Anyhow, let's get started. February 2007. Vladimir Putin's Munich speech is a milestone in contemporary history. Many consider his famous address at the security conference to be a turning point in relations between Moscow and the West. President Putin spoke about major geopolitical issues in no uncertain terms. He harshly criticized the unipolar world model, U.S. foreign policy, and unjustified use of force against other states. Just a little bit about this 2007 Munich speech. This was 
a landmark speech on February 10th of 2007 at the 43rd Munich Security Conference where President Putin openly criticized the United States for its striving for a unipolar, a singular-powered world, its unrestrained use of force, and its disdain for international law. For the first time since the end of the Cold War, President Putin made clear that Russia does not intend to fit into this kind of world order. Despite his criticism, Putin didn't seek confrontation but called for a new partnership on a fair basis. The Western mainstream media distorted his speech and portrayed it as a malicious attack. You know, I've read and I've heard the speech a number of times. It comes across to me not as a malicious attack of the United States and an unwarranted attack, but much more how we would expect someone to stand up to an aggressive bullying style of someone trying to unfairly take advantage of their position of power at work, for instance. So we return to the video, and this is the excerpt of that speech that they grabbed. Again, these are Putin's words. Quote, NATO expansion bears no relation to modernization of the alliance itself or ensuring security in Europe. On the contrary, it represents a serious provocation that reduces mutual trust. And we have the right to ask, whom is this NATO expansion targeting? He goes on, and what happened to the assurances our Western partners gave us after the Warsaw Pact dissolved? And of course, he's referring to the famous words of U.S. Secretary of State James Baker when he promised not one inch eastward that assurance about NATO expansion in his meeting with Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev on February 9, 1990. This was part of a cascade of assurances about Soviet security given by Western leaders to Gorbachev and other Soviet officials throughout the process of German unification in 1990 and on into 1991, according to declassified U.S., Soviet, German, British, and French documents posted by the National Security Archive at George Washington University. You can find these documents on the National Security Archive site posted on December 12, 2017. However, since that promise by James Baker in 1990, an additional 14 countries have joined NATO, and the military base in Poland and another in Romania are evidence of what Russia sees as the threat posed by NATO's eastward expansion and part of his concerns that led to the invasion. Mainly that these American missiles are near Russia's border since the Romanian site went into operation in 2016, but more threatening is the Polish facility, which is only about 100 miles from Russian territory and barely 800 miles from Moscow itself. So Putin asks, you know, are we deploying missiles near the U.S. border? No, we are not. It is the United States that has come to our home with its missiles and is already standing at our doorstep. This is what Putin shared back in December of 2021. We return to the video. Further developments in Georgia, the Western-sponsored Maidan coup, and the ambition to pull both countries into NATO at all costs led to new conflicts and a profound global security crisis. Moscow's numerous attempts to negotiate the rules of the game in Europe proved futile. These are the words of Beres Adibel. He's a professor, foreign political relations department at Kutaya Dumlumpinar University in Turkey. He said, quote, before 2014, the United States intended to admit Ukraine into NATO, but then the, the Crimea factor suddenly appeared. They, referring to the Ukrainian U.S.-installed post-2014 coup government, were planning to set up a military base in Crimea. Before the 2014 coup, Russia and the Ukraine had a mutual treaty agreement 
in which Russia was allowed to have its naval base at Sevastopol there in Crimea for a number of decades. This is the only warm water port that Russia has access to, so its particular national security interests are substantially connected to having access to this naval base. Putin then follows with the words, and I quote, a referendum was held in Crimea on March 17, 2014. Over 96% spoke out in favor of reuniting with Russia. These numbers speak for themselves, end quote. This was then followed by words from Andrei Sushinsov. He's a Dean Megimo School of International Relations, and he describes Crimea accordingly, quote, Crimea is like an unsinkable aircraft carrier. Whoever controls Crimea controls the Black Sea, so transforming Ukraine into a military bridgehead does not surprise me from a geopolitical point of view. The American strategy in the run-up to the crisis was to make Ukraine a military and political counterweight to Russia. They were methodically training the Ukrainian army, end quote. This is Scott Ritter, the former UN weapons inspector from Iraq. The United States had for many years now provided in the area between 100 and $300 million worth of lethal and non-lethal military assistance to Ukraine per year. Yuri Konotov, a Russian military expert, had these words. During the eight years the Ukraine Nazi regime has been in power, the Ukrainian armed forces have undergone serious NATO training at the Yavrov base and other places. According to the Pentagon, some 35,000 people were trained. This was conducted by NATO specialists with combat experience who'd fought in Iraq, Afghanistan, etc. So before moving on, I just wanted to indicate you hear the language that He's talking about the Ukraine Nazi regime had been in power. And this is a particularly thorny subject because we've been confused by our major medias. Clearly, the coup government was loaded with neo-Nazis, with a full half dozen or so cabinet positions given to known neo-Nazis following the 2014 U.S.-sponsored coup. You can email me for the names of those individuals. Returning to the video, the next person to speak is another Russian military expert speaking in Russian, Vladislav Shurgin, and he says, For eight years, the Ukrainian army has been flooded with weapons, from night sights, equipment, and small arms to electronic warfare tools and artillery reconnaissance stations. In the last year, they have begun receiving modern UAVs, which I presume are unmanned aerial vehicles. We return to the narrator of the video. Seeing now is just the tip of the iceberg, the logical outcome of Washington's years-long and consistent policy. Ukraine was chosen as a NATO bridgehead near Russia's borders back in the mid-1990s, when the country started its NATO integration. And these are the words of Peter Kuznick, history professor, writer, director of Nuclear Studies Institute at American University in Washington, D.C. It was in 2008 when George W. Bush said he wanted Ukraine and Georgia to be fast-tracked into NATO that the then U.S. ambassador to Russia, uh, William Burns, who's now the head of the CIA, sent back a memo to Washington titled, Niet means Niet. Don't cross Russia's red lines when it comes to Ukraine joining NATO. And here are the words of President Putin on July 7th, 2022, quote, we hear that we started the war in the Donbass in the Ukraine. No, 
It was unleashed by the collective West, which organized and supported the unconstitutional armed coup in the Ukraine in February 2014, and then encouraged and justified genocide on the people of the Donbass. And these words that we hear from Putin about the genocide on the people of Donbass, these are not empty rhetoric words, the type of words that we often hear from our own war-mongering politicians and news pundits. But this was a, a massacre at the trade unions building in Odessa, where dozens of peaceful protesters of the coup, the illegal coup, sponsored by the United States, on May 2nd, 2014, they were trapped and burned in a trade unions building in Odessa and beaten to death as they tried to escape the flames. This was by right-wing neo-Nazi coup government-led supporters. What followed from this coup was like eight years of bloodshed in this whole area of the eastern oblast of Donetsk and Luhansk that took another 14,000 lives between 2014 coup and the Russian invasion that was launched on February 24th, 2022. And many of these killings were execution style by these neo-Nazi-led brigades, which was also symbolized by the Odessa horrific events. Yet there's 14,000 civilians, not a peep from our mainstream media about these deaths. Uh, yet to date, we have had an overwhelm of U.S. media coverage for the same number, approximate number, of those Ukrainian civilian deaths that have occurred since Russia initiated its invasion, which it calls a special operation. A large number of those deaths, of those civilian deaths, which are quite small compared to the number of people that have died, overwhelmingly Ukrainian soldiers, were actually caused by the illegal use of civilian human shields by this United States-supported Ukrainian troops. And this has been reported by just a number of sources, but also includes a wide range of reporting, including Amnesty International and the Washington Post. We return to our narrator. By the end of 2021, Kyiv had amassed a 150,000 strong military force of well-trained and heavily armed specialists on the DPR and LPR borders. Intelligence reports corroborated that it wasn't being done for defensive purposes. The plan was to launch a full-scale Ukrainian offensive in Donbass and Crimea. One of the Russian analysts had this to say, quote, The U.S. has gone quite far. I can't rule out that Ukraine was ready to develop weapons of mass destruction, which I suppose he was alluding to the 30-plus biolabs that were found in Ukraine as a result of the Russian special operation invasion, if you will biolabs that were U.S. Pentagon connected that we've not heard anything else about. An analyst goes on, the first option for the Russians was a preemptive strike with blood spilling in Ukraine territory. And I might add that, in fact, as we detailed last week, there was a huge spike in missile launches within a week's period leading up to the Russian February 24th, 22 invasion in which the missile strikes emanating from the Ukrainian forces that side of the front there were the 150,000 strong of the Ukrainian forces on the Donbass border there that we also didn't hear anything about. All we heard was that the Russians were moving their forces towards the border, but no one mentions that perhaps they were doing that in response to the Ukrainian enforcements there. But anyhow, that the missile strikes from the Ukrainian side of the front had increased some 15 to 20 fold over that week preceding the invasion of the 24th of August. 
So indeed, this may really have been a preemptive strike. The analyst goes on, indicating that many felt that the Ukrainian invasion was imminent. But another option, he said, was to wait for the Ukrainian armed forces to attack first, but that would have resulted in a bloodbath in the Donbass and Crimea, whose civilians would bear the brunt. So they acted preemptively in the first week and a half to two weeks. It was something like a blitzkrieg unfolded. We return to the narrator as he describes the Russia invasion. On February the 24th, Russian bombers rumbled over Ukraine like a bolt from the blue. Having achieved tactical surprise, the Russian armed forces performed strategic airstrikes on important targets across Ukraine. Military ranges, factories, arms depots, airfields, and logistics hubs. But no civilian targets were hit. A rapid ground offensive was launched simultaneously. Troops headed towards Kyiv, Chernigov, Sumy, Kharkov, Erson, and Mariupol, advancing in all directions. The video then turns to a number of Western officials that predict that it'll be a rapid and complete victory for Ukraine, including Boris Johnson and Jen Stoltenberger, uh, the uh, NATO chief, and just a bunch of Western officials. Then a Russian analyst shares that a force that was clearly insufficient to storm Kiev was pointed at Kiev, though, which apparently was a way to force Kiev to divert important troop numbers from going to the Donbass area which increasingly is looking like their primary objective, namely to secure the safety of the Donbass region that had suffered the 14,000 loss of life over the last eight years in the increasing recent missile strikes. And as a result of the appearance that Russia was seeking Kiev, which based on the number of troops that were delegated to that area was clearly not the case, in which Ukraine had to then counterattack for the next three weeks, thus tying up their Kharkov and Kiev forces there for some time. Of course, this was reported in the West as Putin's attempt to take all of Ukraine immediately, which was never validated. In fact, this seems much more likely that it was trying to divert more forces from the Donbass area. Regardless, the analyst goes on and says, it's become clear that we are not fighting Ukraine, but a block of countries on Ukrainian soil aided by Ukraine's army and acting as a colonial or proxy army, so we have found ourselves in the middle of a major war. We return to the narrator. Donetsk and Lugansk People's Republic's militia conducted offensive operations, receiving air support from the Russian Air Force. Thanks to coordinated air defense efforts, Russian troops managed to intercept more than 97% of enemy aerial targets. In the first few days of the special operation, strategic territories, the Kherson region bordering Crimea, and a major part of Zaporozhye were taken over by the Russian army, essentially without any resistance. Military infrastructure and equipment, prepared for transfer to Donbass, were among the first things to be destroyed. Russia is not only collecting intelligence, but carrying out uh, tactical counterintelligence against not only Ukrainian intelligence capabilities, but the intelligence capabilities of the United States and Europe that are operating in direct support of Ukraine. During these years, while preparing an army of so-called defenders of Ukraine, its Western handlers deliberately chose the most dangerous and harmful tactics in terms of consequences for civilians. Moreover, prompted by their Western handlers, the Ukrainian leadership adopted the outdated practice of creating so-called festungs, which inevitably entail civilian casualties. 
A Russian military analyst described it this way, Ukrainian-trained troops use tactics particularly harmful to civilians, trained for offensive and urban warfare using what they called festongs, F-E-S-T-U-N-G-S. Festong is a German term from 1944 to 1945, which means a fortified city that's been prepared for total defense. Their residents serve as human shields. Hey, but before we go on, we need to take a quick pause for the cause. This is 91.7 KOOP, Hornsby, Austin. This is bringing light into darkness, and we'll be back in a flash. Don't touch that dial. 